Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. Years ago, before I started my health journey, I couldn't go long without a Diet Coke. When I learned about its ingredients, I searched for a better choice option. I didn't like any of the healthier sodas out there until I found Olipop. Olipop is a new kind of soda. It tastes just like the sodas I grew up with, but unlike others that are full of sugar, corn syrup, and artificial ingredients like aspartame, Olipop is made with natural ingredients that are actually good for you. They use functional ingredients that combine the benefits of prebiotics, plant fiber, and botanicals to support your microbiome and benefit digestive health. They have delicious nostalgic flavors like vintage cola, classic root beer, my favorite, orange squeeze, cherry vanilla, strawberry vanilla, classic grape, and their newest flavor, Tropical Punch. For 20% off plus free shipping, go to drinkolipop.com backslash justingredients or use code justingredients at checkout to claim this deal. That's drinkolipop.com slash justingredients. Dr. William Davis is a cardiologist and author of the groundbreaking number one New York Times bestseller, Wheat Belly. Three other New York Times bestsellers, Wheat Belly Cookbook, Wheat Belly 30 Minutes or Less Cookbook, and Wheat Belly Total Health, and several other books, including Wheat Belly 10-Day Grain Detox and Undoctored. His most recent book is Supergut, a four-week plan to reprogram your microbiome, restore health, and lose weight that maps out the damage that has occurred with the modern human microbiome and the specific actionable steps that can be taken to restore it to maximum advantage. Dr. Davis is a graduate of the St. Louis University School of Medicine with training in internal medicine and cardiovascular disease and advanced training in interventional procedures at the Case Western Reserve University Hospitals, where he also served as director of the Cardiovascular Fellowship and assistant professor of medicine. He lives in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Welcome everyone to the show. Today, I am so honored to have Dr. William Davis here with us today. He is an amazing author. Like I said in the bio, you have probably heard about his books or even read his books. And so I am really honored to have him here today. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Carolyn, for the invitation. First of all, will you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and I'm curious, how did a cardiologist become so interested in gut health? <laughs> well, it's been a long journey dating back about 25 years. One of the pivotal changes for me, Carolyn, was, you know, I was practicing interventional cardiology. That's the practice of putting in stents and opening arteries and aborting heart attacks. Well, I moved to Milwaukee. To, they, they invited me here to set up a whole bunch of new technologies because uh, they were kind of a little behind. And so about six months in, I get a call telling me my mom just died of sudden cardiac death. About four months after her successful two-vessel coronary angioplasty. So my poor mom died of the disease that I thought I was managing effectively in a cath lab. Oh, wow. But it was, it was an illustration that trying to manage a disease like that in a procedure room in a hospital is a miserable failure. There's a time and place for these things. 
So I asked myself back then, well, what could I have done? Maybe two years, five years, 10 years before my mom died to identify that potential. Well, the conventional answer is uh, watch cholesterol, reduce cholesterol, which is an absurd, outdated notion. Hmm. But anyway, this is many years ago. So I set up a heart scan device. It was one of the first in, it was the first in Wisconsin, one of the first in the entire Midwest, one of the few in the country back then, so long ago. And we started scanning people left and right. And you know what, Kelly, when you, when you look for silent heart disease years before catastrophe, you find it and you find tons of it. Wow. <laughs> so the way this works is it generates something called a coronary calcium score. The more, the higher your score, the more atherosclerotic plaque you have. We, we score uh, calcium because it's so easy to see, quantify, and it occupies 20% of total plaque volume, atherosclerotic plaque volume. So it's an index. It's a dipstick for the amount of plaque you have. Zero is normal. So we're scanning people. These are people like you and me, people going to work, riding their bike, going for hikes, going swimming, going to school, whatever. And these people are showing up with scores of 300, 500,000, where they oh, wow. freak out, of course. And what do I do? Right. Well, back then, my answer was low fat diet, low saturated fat, uh, high dose statin, like, like Lipitor, baby aspirin, right? Exercise program. So we help publish these data. If you do nothing, those scores go up 25% per year. Wow. And with each step, you're closer and closer to dying. This is a serious disease, right? Right. Or procedure, need for a procedure or symptoms. Well, if you take a high dose statin cholesterol drug, baby aspirin, low fat diet, exercise program, how fast does a score go up? 25% per year. It does nothing. At oh, least goodness. <laughs> wow. Carolyn, what, what do I do? I have thousands of people freaking out on me, right? What do I do? Well, sadly, there are, I have a lot of unscrupulous colleagues who say, well, we'll do the real test, a heart catheterization, and maybe a, pro, a preventive stent or bypass surgery, which, by the way, is malpractice, but it's done all the time. So I, I did not want to go, fall, fall into that trap. So I, it took a lot of stumbling and zigzagging and trial and error. But it led to very important lessons on how to put a stop to this. One of the most important lessons was when you add vitamin D to the mix, it was the first time I saw these scores not just slow down in their progression, in their rise, but actually drop. A score of 500 could be a score of 320 a wow. year later. But I also, it was also clear that this idea of using cholesterol as a predictor and reducing cholesterol with drugs was plain stupid. It should have been discarded 40 or 50 years ago, but it's because it makes so much money. That thing has, that, that notion has persisted because it's made billions and billions of dollars for the pharmaceutical industry. And it's managed, they've managed to brainwash most of my colleagues. But the real tragedy, Carolyn, is that it took everybody's focus off the real causes of heart disease, which they pay no attention to at all. One of the causes is an excess of small LDL particles, not LDL cholesterol, that crude indirect marker, but the actual particles themselves. So that's a very powerful cause for heart disease. Well, this science was quite clear when I started doing this about 15, 18 years ago. What foods, it's a dietary issue, what foods cause formation of small LDL particles? Grains and sugars, period, period. Not wow. saturated fat, not total fat. Oh, so <laughs> interesting. Beef. Well, that's when I asked people... I'd say, hey, Mary, your heart scan score is 500. It's gone up 25% per year on statin drugs and aspirin and a low fat diet. 
let's try something different. You got small LDL. We did an NMR lipoprotein panel. It's a very common test you can do. And your small LDL is 1,800 nanomoles per liter, particle count per volume. Let's take out the foods, because this science was quite clear. Not my science, other people's science. Let's take out the grains, and let's add some nutrients that are largely lacking that also impact small LDL and, and related measures, like vitamin D and omega-3 fatty acids. Well, she does this, and she comes back six months later and says, oh, why did I lose 53 pounds? You didn't tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. Uh, why am I why am I no longer hungry? I can coast through the day eating once or twice. Why did my triglycerides drop from 325 to 40? Why did my blood sugar drop from the diabetic range down to below 100? Why did I have to stop my insulin, my three diabetes drugs? Why did I have to stop my four blood pressure medicines because I started getting so lightheaded? In other incredible. Words, incredible. I stumbled on something for the purposes of reducing small LDL particles. And I, I was clear, you know, at first I thought, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, you know, because to say that wheat grains and sugars are the cause for so many health conditions goes against the dictates of virtually the entire diet, diet world, doctors, dietitians, American Heart Association, American Diabetes Association, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, USD, they all agree, you must cut your fat, cut your saturated fat, eat more healthy whole grains. You've heard of this. Right, yeah. Well, I'm saying the opposite. So at first I thought, as I dug deeper, I understand why. Why would, if you take wheat and grains out of the diet, why would all these wonderful things happen? Well, became, there, there are a number of reasons, but one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons is that agribusiness had changed this thing called wheat quite dramatically in the 60s and 70s. So the wheat that we all remember, this four and a half, five foot tall plant is now an 18 inch tall, very thick stalk, large seed, large seed head plant, very genetically different, very biochemically different, very different it's, uh, with its effects on humans. So that was part of the reason why taking it out yielded these unexpected and fairly extravagant effects. Wow. I have so many questions I want to ask you. So let's start back at the beginning of your conversation. So for those that are listening, can someone just go get a blood work done, um, a blood test done to see their LDL particles? Yeah, I've been doing it for 20 some years. Uh, but most doctors will say, oh, Carolyn, we can't do that. Right. It's unavailable or insurance doesn't pay for it or it's not been proven, that's all BS. That's all nonsense. This, this, this is going to sound terribly harsh. Forgive me. But a lot of my, my, my colleagues say things like this. Oh, Carolyn, did you consult Dr. Google again? <laughs> <laughs> or, oh, there's no proof of that. What they're really saying is, I don't care enough to spend the time to educate myself in the science. So I'm just going to make fun of your question. It's very common. This paternalistic, I know better than you. They think they have the right to tell you that you're, you're, you're asking stupid questions. It's not true. They're wrong. They're too lazy, too disinterested, too invested in the conventional idea of reducing cholesterol, which is an absurd notion, by the way. It's, it's woefully outdated. Well, that's my second question for you is about the cholesterol, because Daily, I get people that say, oh, my doctor told me I need to lower my cholesterol. What's the best thing that I should do to do this? And in fact, my brother, even the other day, was like, oh, I went and got blood work done. My 
Doctor says I need to lower my cholesterol. So why are doctors still saying this then? Because it's just going to once again sound very cynical and harsh. Most education of my colleagues is not a consideration of the science. It's the sexy sales rep in a miniskirt who promises lunch, dinner, and an all-expense-paid trip to Orlando. That's just a sad... You know, I, I took that bait in the beginning. I grew up a very poor kid. I, I graduated medical school and training, broke, because I had to borrow so much money. Uh, and so when they started saying, hey, Dr. Davis, you want to go to an all-expense-paid to Orlando for a week? We're going to assemble key thought leaders. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, of course I do. Right. <laughs> so I, I took the bait. But it became clear that this was just a, a way of controlling your prescribing habits. This, by the way, it's worse in the medical device industry. That, that was part of the world I was in, as well as the pharmaceutical industry. And so they're very effective at persuading people. That there's a lot of problems with all that statin cholesterol data. One, much of it, nearly all of it, not all, but nearly all of it was paid for by the pharmaceutical industry. You know, if an auto company says their car is the finest car in the world. And you say, how do you know that? And they say, we performed a study and compared our brand of vehicle to all others and ours proved superior, but they paid for it. You and I know that's marketing, that's not science. So much of the science purported to support the statin cholesterol drug market was paid for by the drug industry. Another thing is they use sleight of hand in their reporting of the results. So let's say, let's say you and I invent a drug and we give it to a thousand people. And that thousand people has, they have, there's one heart attack over five years. Another thousand people, we give placebo. And in that group, there's two heart attacks. Well, what's the, what's the benefit? It's kind of tiny, right? But it's reported as a 50% reduction in heart attack. Oh, interesting. So what people hear, of course, is oh, of hundred heart attacks destined to happen, 50 won't happen. That's what my colleague, that's why they say things like, uh, if you take this drug, it'll reduce heart attack risk by 36% or 44%. That's not true. That's interesting. So, and there's some other problems. But it's a house of cards built on deception, sleight of hand and statistical reporting, paying for their own studies. There's so many problems. And the tragedy is the real causes for, for heart disease, Carolyn, are easy to identify, easy to correct, and coronary disease is easy to regress. Really? So... A lot of people, though, are afraid of high cholesterol. So what is high cholesterol going to harm the body with? It doesn't. That's the problem. It's a lousy, in the best case scenario, high cholesterol, like LDL cholesterol or total cholesterol, is a lousy marker. So one example, what's the average LDL cholesterol of an American person, American adult? It's about 133 milligrams per deciliter. What's the LDL cholesterol of a person who has a heart attack or has sudden cardiac death? 133 milligrams per deciliter. And so, see, cholesterol was meant to be nothing more. And this is the 1950s, 1950s, and then to 1960. Doctors William Fredrickson and Dr. William Friedewald working at the NIH, they, they knew that there were fractions in plasma, the clear part of blood, that seemed to be related to heart disease risk. But in 1958, if you had a layer of plasma and wanted to count the number of particles in each layer, well, that's a really tough thing to do in 2022, let alone 1958. So they devised a method, an indirect method. They knew that small, low-density lipoprotein particles had a number of components, like apoprotein B and triglycerides and 
cholesterol, and some other things. They said, you know what? We can't measure the particles readily, so let's just choose one component, hmm. cholesterol. Let's use it as an indirect, but we accept crude way of guesstimating how many particles there are. So that's, that was the birth of cholesterol as a marker for the particles that cause heart disease. Unfortunately, that got interpreted as cholesterol causes heart disease. Cholesterol does not cause heart disease. Cholesterol is a ubiquitous fat in all the body's cells, about 25% all your cells and your eyes and your face and your skin, and your pancreas and your heart are made up of cholesterol. Cholesterol does not cause heart disease. Cholesterol can't float free in the, in the bloodstream because it's a fat and fats can't float free. They have to be attached to something that makes them water or aqueous soluble. And that's, that's what a lipoprotein does. So it's not the cholesterol that's a marker for lipoproteins, it's the actual lipoproteins themselves that are the cause for heart disease. But no one's talking about it because there's so much money to be made by reducing cholesterol. Yeah, no one is talking about it. So I know my listeners are like, okay, what is causing high LDL particles and what's causing lower LDL particles? Just getting rid of the grains and sugar? Well, th that's a big, big start. And that's not my data. That's Dr. Ron Krause. It's, it's experiences from Hopkins. And it's from University of Toronto. There's 51 studies, Carolyn, 51 studies showing that uh, small LDL particles are a very powerful predictor of cardiovascular disease, far superior than LDL cholesterol. But there's only two dietary causes for small LDL, like, like we said, grains and sugars, period. Now, it's amplified if you have insulin resistance, that is your body's poorly responsive to its own insulin, your liver, your brain, muscle don't respond to insulin. And when the pancreas that makes insulin senses that, it overproduces insulin hugely. So a, a healthy, slender person like you probably has a fasting insulin level of about two or three <laughs> micro units. But what about a woman who's 210 pounds, big waist, right? High blood pressure. Her fasting insulin level is probably about 70. It's not a little bit worse. It's hugely worse. Well, that insulin magnifies the expression of small LDL particles hugely. Oh, that's Another thing that does it uh, is the lack of nutrients that impact insulin resistance. So there are widespread nutrient deficiencies because of modern life, not because of the diet. Magnesium, for instance, which impacts insulin resistance because we drink filtered water. We have to. You, you can't go to the river or stream. It's got sewage in it. It's got other things. So we drink filtered water, but water filtration removes all magnesium. So we all are severely magnesium depleted. When you restore magnesium, it helps reduce insulin resistance. Vitamin D. Because we live indoors, your listeners are, are law-abiding people and they wear clothes in public. <laughs> and as we age, we lose the capacity to activate vitamin D in the skin with sun exposure. So we replace vitamin D and iodine and omega-3 fatty acids. Those nutrients, when replaced, further reduce insulin resistance and inflammation. And the most recent addition to the strategies we use for stopping or reversing coronary risk, as well as other conditions, is to address what's called endotoxemia. This is a big deal, Carolyn. This is a situation where, so if you took antibiotics 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, and most people by age 40 have taken 30 courses of antibiotics, and there are many microbes, healthy microbes, like my favorite in the world, lactobacillus rotari and others, 
that are very susceptible to antibiotics. So you lose them. So we've lost hundreds of beneficial species. But when that happens, unhealthy, mostly colonic stool species like E. coli, Klebsiella, Citrobacter, Proteus, et cetera, proliferate because they're now no longer under the control of the healthy microbes. They proliferate. And then in many, many, many people, by my conservative estimation, one in three Americans or over 100 million people in this country, these unhealthy stool microbes have ascended up into the 24 feet of small bowel, the ileum, jejunum, duodenum, and stomach. Now, when that happens, the small bowel has a very fragile mucus barrier, unlike the colon's thick, durable mucus, double layer mucus barrier. So when these unhealthy stool microbes colonize a small bowel, you know, they only live for a few hours. They don't live very long. Well, there's huge turnover of trillions of microbes. When they break down, when they die, many of their breakdown products enter the bloodstream. And that's called endotoxemia. And that's a major driver of cardiovascular risk, small LDL particles, insulin resistance, and inflammation. So following that formula, that is the diet, the foods that provoke formation of small LDL, addressing nutrients largely missing from the modern diet that influence insulin resistance and addressing endotoxemia uh, gives you magnificent control over cardiovascular risk and has nothing to do with cholesterol. Wow. A lot of people listening are just thinking, wow, the gut is related to the heart. That's not something that's talked about quite often. But let me ask you really quick. Okay, so this endotoxemia that you're talking about is that the same as leaky gut? It's a consequence of leaky gut. So anything that erodes the intestinal barriers, the gliadin protein of wheat is a biggie, big one. <laughs> that increases the gut leak and thereby endotoxemia. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like naproxen, ibuprofen, and aspirin also increase gut leak. And then these stool microbes living in the small bowel where they don't belong, where there's a fragile mucus barrier, that also increases endotoxin. But Carolyn, it's causing us to redefine, reconsider virtually every disease known to man outside of injury and infection. In other words, it's become clear that psoriasis, rosacea, coronary disease, fatty liver, uh, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's dementia, depression, migraine headaches, on and on and on, type two diabetes, obesity are to a great degree, not entirely, but to a great degree worsened by endotoxemia. That is by bowel microbes. Okay, so do you have to have leaky gut first to then progress to endotoxemia? There's always some baseline level of endotoxemia just because bacteria live and die rapidly and some do get uh, entry. But it's when you get this, the biggest problem is when you have all 30 feet of your GI tract, that is from the, from the uh, esophagus or stomach on down to the, to the colon, filled with these unhealthy microbes. So the, the essential features here are that it's an overproliferation of unhealthy species like E. coli and Klebsiella that had been ascended into the small bowel. That's the key thing here. It's not clear if those stool microbes remained in the colon, is that a bad thing? It's probably not the ideal situation, but it's not a big deal. It's when they ascend into the small bowel. Now, here I have, I, I was skeptical, Carolyn, this was a big deal. I thought this is called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO. Right. 
I, I was skeptical. I thought, oh, no, that's an occasional thing. Not until this came out, the AIR device, A-I-R-E. Okay. Should we talk about that? Yeah, tell me, what, what is that? This is the older device, it's a newer device. So it was invented by a engineer PhD in Dublin, Ireland. Nice guy, he's my friend now, Dr. Angus Short. And his fiance, then fiance, now wife, had irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, and she was told to go on a low FODMAPS diet. But he saw that it was tough for her. And when she tripped up, she'd have a lot of gas and bloating and diarrhea. So he invents this device and it talks to your smartphone and it registers how much hydrogen gas microbes are producing. So hmm. if she slips up and has something, her hydrogen gas level goes up. So he thought it was a device for people with IBS on a low FODMAPS diet. So he releases it in 2018, 2019. I call him up when I get my hands up. I said, Angus, that's not what this is. This is a device that maps out where in the GI tract microbes are living. That's what it is. Oh, interesting. So he's slowly in the process of revamping their instructions. There's some regulatory restrictions. That's why it's taking so long. But I tell you that because if people order it, it's like $200. It's not not cheap, but it's not terrible either, because the convent there's a conventional test that costs many hundreds of dollars every time you do it. But this one, you buy it once, you can use it over and over and over again. But it registers hydrogen gas on the breath. Now, there's a specific way to use this. And unfortunately, if you buy it from the company, the instructions are not right because because the, they're in the, the process of changing them. <laughs> exactly right. Now, I do have the instructions in my super gut book on how to use it as a mapping device. Well, Carolyn, so as I talked about this and many hundreds, now thousands of people have been using this device, I was shocked. The positive tests are everywhere. And I'm seeing that it's the exception, a person who tests negative. Now you might say, well, maybe the test sucks. Maybe it's a terrible test. Or, Well, here's what happens though. We identify the abnormality. It's a zero to 10 scale. And uh, let's say you start real high, maybe 10. You take steps to correct the SIBO, the proliferated microbes in 30 feet of GI tract. And people say, you know what? Uh, finally, my eczema is gone. Finally, mm -hmm. I broke my weight loss plateau. Finally, my anxiety and depression has lifted. Finally, my mind fog is gone. Finally, I don't have irritable bowel syndrome anymore. In other words, uh, yeah, it did the improvements correlated with the improvement in the hydrogen gas measurements. So the hydrogen gas measurements is showing that more people have SIBO than we think. Yeah, hugely more. And I really think, Carolyn, that 100 million people in this country alone, one out of three Americans, is an underestimation. Because I wouldn't have said that just a couple of years ago until I saw people uh, testing left and right. And it's really the, the uncommon person who tests negative. We have really done a number on the GI microbiome. And that's what we're all working to do, trying to correct it. Now that's a whole other conversation. What do you do to correct it? Because sadly, if you go to your gastroenterologist, he says, Carolyn, don't waste my time. There's nothing wrong with you. Right. I didn't see anything on your colonoscopy. Or did you consult Dr. Google again, right? <laughs> the rare doctor who says, oh, that, is, that could be an issue. Let's test you. They send you to a lab. They charge many hundreds of dollars. They say, you have it. Here's a prescription for rifaximin an antibiotic. But, you know, I find it hard to accept that an antibiotic is going to be used to treat something caused by antibiotics. Right. 
but that is the conventional solution. It's very ineffective, 25 to 60% effective. And of course, the gastroenterologist typically does not understand exactly what he's trying to do. Doesn't give you advice on how, it got, how you got it, how to increase the efficacy, how to prevent the recurrences, which are common. We were using various herbal preparations that have some validation in science, but I'll tell you, and this is preliminary though, we're using something I call SIBO yogurt. I came with this by asking some basic questions. You know, if, if you have SIBO, 30 feet of microbes, uh, let's say it's causing you to be depressed or rheumatoid arthritis. If you take a commercial probiotic, will your SIBO go away? No, it will not. You might reduce the bloating a little bit or diarrhea, but it won't go away. So I asked these questions. I said, what if we chose microbes that colonize the upper GI tract? That's where SIBO occurs. Mm. And what if we choose species that are known to produce what are called bactericins? These are natural antibiotics produced by some microbes effective against the species of SIBO, effective against stool organisms. So we made yogurt, not yogurt like in the store. I call it yogurt because it looks and smells like yogurt, but it's really a way to ferment microbes to very high counts. We perform flow cytometry on our yogurts. We're getting like 250 billion microbes per half cup serving. And so, so this is preliminary, uh, about 35 people who've done this, 90% have converted to negative hydrogen gas. So I'm, now we will wow. do a formal clinical trial. I'm going to partner with Angus Short and his company, Food Marble, with the air device. So we'll prove this. But so far, it has handily beaten everything that has ever been done for SIBO. So I, it, it's preliminary. So that's, I don't want to put that much faith in it. But so far, it's working. That's incredible. It's yogurt. It's yogurt. You know, Carolyn, if I said, Carolyn, you have SIBO and the solution is to remove your colon or the solution is a frontal lobotomy, you would say, well, hell, you better be damn certain of your diagnosis. Well, what if the solution is make some yogurt? Yeah, that's much better. (laughs) Okay. Can I ask you some basics about SIBO though? Because I know my listeners are now thinking, shoot, how do I know if I have SIBO? Do they have to have that device or are there other maybe symptoms that might Give them a little tip that they have it. The device is handy. It costs a little money and it's useful for detecting recurrences, but you don't have to get the thing. There are what I call telltale signs. So some common signs would be food intolerances. People would say, oh, I can't eat FODMAPs. I can't eat nightshades like eggplant or tomatoes. I get real sick. Or I can't eat histamine containing foods like cheese or wine or fructose containing or fruit. All these intolerances, people say, I only can eat six foods. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or I did that testing and they said, eliminate these 37 foods. That is almost all SIBO. So food intolerances. Seeing fat in the toilet after a bowel movement, fat droplets, that's fat malabsorption. It's not from lack of pancreatic enzymes. As many people think it's from the SIBO organisms blocking the ac- action of pancreatic enzymes. Another would be uh, having... S- Conditions that are virtually synonymous with SIBO, restless leg syndrome, very high likelihood. Irritable bowel syndrome, very high likelihood. Fibromyalgia, maybe as high as 100% likelihood and to a severe degree. Wow. Type 2 diabetes, obesity, fatty liver carry a 50% or higher likelihood of SIBO. And so some people just say, you know what? 
I'm intolerant to tomatoes mm -hmm. and to legumes and to these eight other foods. <laughs> and I have oily diarrhea and I have bloating and I have a funny skin rash that doesn't respond to steroid creams. I'm, I'm, I think I have SIBO. I'm just going to uh, proceed based on my best judgment. If the, if the treatment was nasty or very invasive, like an exploratory laparotomy, you, you shouldn't do this based on judgment. But if the potential treatment, Carolyn, is just make some yogurt and eat it for a month, you know, I think it really lowers the bar on, you know, really having to test everybody. It is helpful to test, but you don't have to. Okay, so those symptoms are very common symptoms of most people. So it sounds like a lot of people might have SIBO. So I know my listeners are like, well, we don't have the yogurt yet. So what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to lessen the SIBO? Well, you can't. So I, I should make this distinction that the yogurt in the store. So the way you, the reason why we ferment for a long time, that's how you grow microbes. There's no sexual reproduction, right? There's no mommy and daddy microbes. They have something called asexual reproduction. One microbe becomes two, two becomes four like that. Well, my favorite microbe in the world, lactobacillus reuteri, doubles every three hours. Well, commercial fermentation to make yogurt is a four-hour process. So in a, in a factory, you've got nothing. We ferment for 36 hours, allowed to double 12 times. Do you remember the kid's riddle? It, which would you rather have? A million dollars or a penny? A penny, yep, exactly. Exactly. For 30 days. Kids always say, right, a million dollars. Right. Not recognizing that that penny becomes over five and a half million dollars. But if you look at the curve of money increase, you'll see that the money doesn't really start to increase until about day 27. Same thing with microbes. If Rotary, for instance, doubles every three hours, you don't get these big, big, big hundreds of billions of numbers till about hour 33. And so four hours in a factory, you got nothing. It takes 33, 36 hours. That's why when we count the microbes, we're getting hundreds of billions. So that's one of the key concepts that people sometimes have a hard time understanding because they think that the yogurt in the store is, that's why store bought yogurt. They add things like gel and gum, xanthan gum, guar gum, carrageenan to thicken it up because there's almost no microbes in it, nor microbial byproducts. Right. We're going to use it as a bacterial count amplification system. And that's how, why we get these big, big, big effects. Now, the, the only tricks here, if you want to make, if somebody's interested in the SIBO yogurts, that's a recipe in my super gut book. Uh, or I have a website also. It's a uh, membership website, though. It's called drdavisinfinitehealth.com. Like last night, I had a two-hour conversation with 82 people. And we talked about these kinds of things. So the recipes are there because you have to know where to get the microbes and the temperature at which to ferment them. Just like animals, you know, crocodiles live in different uh, environments than hamsters or squirrels and humans. So microbes are different too. They, they prefer different temperatures, different uh, situations. And so I've done the work for you and say this, here's where you get the microbes. Here's how you ferment them. So you get these big, big numbers. Okay. So if someone buys your book, Super Gut, which is your newest book, then they'll get these recipes or know how to incorporate these microbes into their diet. And I also tell people, Carolyn, that think of microbes like going to a restaurant. So if you walk into a restaurant and the, and the waitress hands you a menu, do you freak out and say, I can't possibly order all these appetizers and main dishes and, and desserts? No, right? You, you pick and choose the, 
the uh, dishes you want. Same thing here. You can pick the microbe for the effect you want. If you want smoother skin and reduced wrinkles, deeper sleep and increased libido, let's make yogurt with lactobacillus reuteri. If you want a reduction in waist size, waist circumference, and visceral fat over that achieved with your diet, add lactobacillus gasseri. If you want accelerated recovery, my, my daughter's a pro tennis player, so she, I, she does this. If you want accelerated recovery from strenuous exercise and less muscle breakdown, let's make yogurt with bacillus coagulants. If you want to have your depression lifted, let's make yogurt with lactobacillus helveticus and bifidobacterium longum. If you want to think a little faster and be happier, let's make yogurt with lactobacillus brevis. If you want a healthier baby. What if you want <laughs> all of those? That has a higher IQ, is less likely to have diabetes and obesity later in life. And as an infant is more likely to sleep through the night and have 50% fewer bowel movements, 50% fewer diaper changes from mom and dad, let's ferment bifidobacter infantis. So Carolyn, it's, and I, I think, we're approaching an age where the power of the microbiome is so powerful, so effective, that it's going to eclipse pharmaceuticals hmm. and the stranglehold they have on the American economy. Well, let's hope. Okay, so you say let's ferment these different bacteria. Is this all taught in your book of how to ferment these different bacteria? It's easy. It's fun as heck. And you get these extravagant results, like the rotori that you and I were talking before we came on air. So the rotori has been lost. Almost all of us have lost it because it's very susceptible to uh, common antibiotics like amoxicillin and ampicillin and penicillin. So you've lost it. What happens when you restore it? Well, one of the effects is it, it sends a signal to your brain to release the hormone oxytocin, the hormone of love and empathy. So people say, you know what? I like my family better. I like my partner better. I like my coworkers don't annoy me as much. I understand other people's points of view better. But that burst of oxytocin also does all kinds of other things. It restores youthful muscle and strength. It preserves bone density. It accelerates healing. It deepens sleep. I'm a chronic insomniac, Carolyn. Terrible. Decades of struggling and taking horse doses of melatonin and tryptophan. I now sleep like a baby, nine hours straight through, kid-like vivid dreams. Many people get a lot of a return of erotic dreams, like they were 19 again, and an increase in libido. But the ladies go berserk over it because Reuteri, this lost microbe, via oxytocin, causes an explosion of dermal collagen hmm. and your skin gets moister and wrinkle depth uh, starts to diminish about four to eight weeks. Wow. So, All of this from one microbe. One microbe. One yes, tiny, one tiny microbe. little microbe. That's incredible. And so can you ferment this microbe at home? Yeah, it's very easy. Uh, so I, all the instructions in the Super Gut book and also in my blog, the DR Dave's Infinite Health blog and, and the membership website. One thing people have to pay attention to to some degree is strain, uh, bacterial strain. So there's genus, species, and strain. Well, this sounds incredibly dull and <laughs> tedious, but the best example is E. coli. So I've got E. coli. Your listeners have E. coli. We all have E. coli. But what if you ate lettuce? contaminated by cow manure and E. coli. Well, you could die of that E. coli. Same species, Escherichia coli, 
different strain. Mm. So strain distinctions can even make a life death difference. Now here's something I don't know. Are there strains of lactobacillus rotorite better at this? Well, our first mouse trial is about to get underway. We're going to uh, compare a bunch of different strains of rotorite. So right now, the strains I know work. I've, I've made yogurt with eight different strains. And my personal experience is that they all work so far and there is no strain difference, but you have to at least be aware of strain differences because there are times when it does matter. But we obtained the original rotorite from a company called BioGaia in Sweden, and they sell it to you as a, a tablet called Gastrus, G-A-S-T-R-U-S. But it's made for infants. And so the dose of microbes is very low. And that was my original motivation for making yogurt. I wanted much higher counts because when we make the yogurt out of it, we amplify the counts by a thousand fold. But there's, there's some other strains coming out. I think that work. There's another product called LR Superfood from a company called um, Cutting Edge Cultures, which I have an association with. So there's that disclaimer. But I believe that strain works. But I'll know with better confidence in a few months when we do our first mouse trial which strains are better. And we're also looking to see if there's a way to amplify this effect by using some other strategies. But so, but a lot of stuff in the works, Carolyn, to all in the name of giving you extraordinary control over health and skin. And, ju- and by the way, the Rotorite also helps rebuild joint cartilage. Wow. Isn't that something? This microbe seems magical. It seems like we all need it. I'm like, wow, I need that for lots of different reasons. So I have a question though. I know my listeners are going to be wondering, well, can't I just take like a good spore probiotic? Does that help? Uh, No, I I, I would discourage people from doing that. There's a couple of spore forming species like uh, Bacillus coagulans is a good one. Bacillus subtilis is a good one, Uh, but that's about it. I've seen a lot of problems with spore forming microbes because they've not been subjected to sufficient scrutiny. So I, I would not, though those two do work and those are great. Like the coagulants is the one that reduces joint pain. Uh, Subtilis is, is a K2 former, vitamin K2 producer. And they have some other benefits also. But the most important thing that people can do to rebuild a microbiome is not buy a fancy probiotic. Probiotics in their current versions are really kind of slapdash haphazard collections with the only exception I know of that it's not just a random collection of microbes is a product called BiotiQuest, B-I-O-T-I Quest, because um, I know the founders, Martha Carlin and Dr. Raul Cano. And uh, Raul is a big believer in what are called guild or consortia effects among microbes. That is, microbes are just like people. We don't live in isolation. We live with families, uh, neighbors, communities, um, microbes are the same way. They depend on each other for metabolites. So the, the, the mix of microbes that Raul came to create via his research, um, this is in vitro research in a, a gastrointestinal simulating model. It's marketed as something called sugar shift. And they call it that because it consumes sugar in your GI tract and reduces blood sugar. We gave it to 20 people in our audience and they reduced their fasting blood sugar, non-diabetics, by 9.8 milligrams, about 10 milligrams, which is on a par with prescription medications. So that's the only collaborative or guild formulation I know of. The rest of them are just kind of haphazard collections. They can be helpful, but they're not as effective as they could be. We're going to see in coming 
months and years, more smarter formulations on probiotics. But that all said, Carolyn, the most important thing somebody can do to rebuild a microbiome is just eat fermented foods. Well, that was my next question because I know listeners are like, okay, well, great. What am I supposed to do? So I'm assuming whole foods and fermented foods. Yeah. So veggies you ferment on the counter, very easy. Kefirs, yogurts, kimchi, uh, sauerkraut, uh, truly fermented sauerkraut, of course. I make Saccharomyces boulardii sparkling juices on my counter. I take, you take a juice, any volume, uh, could be, uh, I've used mango, passion fruit, uh, apple cider, cider, not juice, with, with the you know, right. cloudy with stuff. the mother in it. Uh, pomegranate juice, grape juice. It just can't have any preservatives like potassium sorbate or sodium benzoate because they kill microbes. <laughs> By the oh. way, those preserves kill microbes in the juice and in you. Interesting, because those are preservatives used in a lot of common foods. Mm-hmm. It's like taking an antibiotic. Wow. So, so you want to get a juice that has no preservatives, and you can find them, and then take a commercial probiotic called Flora Store. In the U.S., it's other names elsewhere, but it's Flora Store. It's like, I think, $18. Take one capsule and empty it into the juice. Cap it lightly, not tightly, lightly, because you'll see at 24 hours, it's bubbling away like mad. That's how vigorous the, uh, the fermentation is. You may even have to burp it now and then so it doesn't explode on your <laughs> kitchen counter. And then at 48 hours, it, the sugar is reduced by 50%. So, so there's still some sugar and we drink about a quarter cup, maybe a half cup, a couple times a day. And it's one of the most important things you can do to re- restore order in your intestinal microbiome. It's also one of the most important things you can do, by the way, also during a course of antibiotics, which is massively disruptive on your microbiome, the Saccharomyces boulardii sparkling juices minimize that damage. And you know, it's delicious. It tastes like, you know, grape soda or pomegranate soda. Huh. I'm going to go home and try that. That's really interesting. Um, okay, you talked about fermented foods, but what about fiber? Isn't fiber amazing for the gut? Like it feeds the good bacteria? Yeah, so that's important. You're exactly right. So we need fibers that microbes like to consume. And these are the fibers and such things as onions and garlic and shallots and dandelion greens and green unripe bananas and raw white potatoes and inulin powder or the galacto-oligosaccharides in legumes like white beans, black beans, kidney beans, and peas and chickpeas. Yeah, yeah. So those things are all necessary and wonderful. Okay. So lots of veggies, nuts, seeds, beans, things like that. Okay. Can I quickly ask you about wheat? Because we just touched upon it quickly. So you talked about how it changed in the sixties and seventies, but hasn't it changed since the nineties with glyphosate? Yes. That's an excellent point. That's right. So glyphosate, that is this ingredient in Roundup herbicide is it's an herbicide, of course, but it's also a very potent antibiotic. Ironically. So Monsanto filed patents for glyphosate as an herbicide, but also as an antibiotic till they recognized that it was the worst antibiotic you could possibly get because it's effective in killing healthy microbes like lactobacillus species. And it's ineffective against the species of SIBO or stool microbes. So it actually selects for the bad guys like Klebsiella and Citrobacter and E. coli. And so now, now that all of us have glyphosate in us, 
you know, it's a problem. So that is a big part of the problem. Now, by the way, there's some emerging technology I can't talk about because it's not my technology, it's someone else's, of a microbe that consumes glyphosate and it inactivates it. So that might be really interesting oh, in the near future. That would be really interesting because glyphosate is in all of the processed foods, basically. And now even in rainwater and things like that. So is there a way at all to avoid glyphosate? Sadly, no, because they've done such a good job of disseminating its use to, to incredible levels that you're exactly right, Carolyn. It's in water, it's in air, it's in food. If all of us, us and our, your listeners, had their hair, urine, blood, skin, livers tested, it's all has measurable quantities of glyphosate, all because of the profiteering motive of a corrupt agribusiness company. So if we buy organic, are we limiting the amount of glyphosate we're taking in? Yeah, I think it's, it's impractical to think that you can be absolutely protected from all the herbicides, pesticides, and other chemicals too, of course. All you can do is minimize it. And yeah, organic, grow it yourself, those kinds of things do, do help, but they're not, they don't make you, imper they don't make you 100% protected, sadly. Yeah. So if glyphosate is such an antibiotic on our gut and our gut is so important for our for every piece of our health. Do you think that's why Americans are getting sicker and sicker? I, I think that's one of the reasons. It's hard to blame one thing. Wheat consumption, another big, you know, things we haven't talked about, for instance, the gliadin protein of wheat, uh, because the humans lack the digestive enzymes to break down the proteins of seeds of grasses. That's what wheat and grains are. And so you'll have fragments. The gliadin protein yields peptide fragments. Well, these peptide fragments act as opioids on the human brain and they stimulate appetite, huge appetite stimulation. So mm. that's why a lot of people say, I can't give up my sandwiches and rolls because they have an addictive relationship with the foods. So um, uh, by the way, getting rid of wheat and thereby the gliadin derived opioid peptides is magnificently freeing because people will say, first of all, I'm going through a withdrawal process. I don't feel good. Nausea, headaches, depression uh, for about three to five days, but then you feel wonderful after that. And you no longer have that. You've seen these people who crowd the all you can eat food buffet and knock you out of, your, <laughs> out of the way and grab the spoon. Those are wheat eaters. They can't control their impulses because they have an appetite stimulant in them. So it's you and me and your listeners who are wheat and grain free who say, you know what? Uh, I don't fight for food. In fact, I'm going to wait a few hours. And when I get hungry, I don't get that rumbling kind of desperate hunger. I get this soft reminder. Oh, I might have to eat something in a few hours. It's a very different experience. Okay. So that gliadin is in the gluten, which is in wheat. So what about grains without gluten in them? Are you okay with those grains? So all the seeds of grasses, whether they have gliadin or a close relative like cecalin in rye or hordein in barley or zein in corn, they all have adverse effects, opioid effects or autoimmune stimulating effects. And then we have the grains that don't have that. Those are called prolamin proteins. Then we have grains like millet, rice. How about quinoa? Quinoa is not a, not a grain, it's not a seed of a grass. It's got some other issues, mostly a carb exposure issue, but uh, it doesn't have that the protein, the the, the uh, indigestible proteins of, of grains. 
but uh, no matter what you do to the seeds of grass, because humans just aren't equipped to uh, eat the seeds of grasses. You know, if your listeners, if we were all starving, hadn't eaten anything in two weeks, you're desperate to eat something, and you spy a field of grass, would, would you say, well, hallelujah, we're going to eat like kings today? No. no. You know, <laughs> it's testimony to the cleverness of humans 12,000 years ago that in a moment of desperation, they figured out how to turn, that, in that case, wild wheat, einkorn wheat, uh, into something they could eat. Because you, you have to isolate the seed from the husk, you dry it in the sun, you pulverize it with a stone, and then you heat it in a stone um, bowl over a fire and you make porridge. That was the first, episode, the first instance where humans consumed the seeds of grasses from einkorn wheat, the 14 chromosome form of wheat. And by the way, modern wheat is 42 chromosomes, completely different. Wow. So einkorn is not the same today as it was originally. No, it's completely different. Not to say that traditional strains are without their own problems. So those people 12,000 years ago who first turned to seeds of grasses, einkorn wheat, wild growing wheat, and then emmer during the biblical periods, and then other strains, spelt and other traditional strains. So here's a question anthropologists asked. What happened to those people when they first went from hunting and gathering, killing animals, fish, digging in the dirt for roots and tubers, gathering berries, all that kind of stuff, but then began to harvest the seeds of grasses. What happened? There was an explosion in tooth decay. Prior to consumption of grains, one to 3% of all teeth recovered showed decay or tooth loss or abscess. With the introduction of seeds of grasses, 16 to 49% of all teeth showed decay, uh, rot, abscess formation, or misalignment, interestingly. There was a doubling of knee arthritis. There was the appearance of multiple nutrient deficiencies, especially iron, because grains have something called phytates mm -hmm. that bind minerals in your gut, especially iron, as well as zinc, magnesium, manganese, and calcium, and you pass it out into the toilet. So grain consumption is a huge cause of nutrient deficiencies, contrary to what we're told, right? You need it for the fiber and B vitamins. Right. Well, you can get those fiber and B vitamins from your vegetables. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, very good point. And with none of the problems, none of the problems of wheat and grains. So interesting. Okay, so now we've got glyphosate as an issue. We've got this these grains with the gliadin in it as an issue. We've got sugar as an issue. No wonder why we're getting sicker and sicker, right? Yeah, and you know, sadly, Carolyn, with each passing generation, the status of the of a person's microbiome is getting worse and worse. Because we pa grandma passed on her somewhat uh, defective microbiome to your parents, one of your parents, their microbiome disrupted by antibiotics, chlorinated drinking water, other prescription drugs, preservatives in food, emulsifying agents and ice cream, all that stuff. Their disease microbiome passed on to you, and then we pass it on to our children. So with each passing generation, it's becoming worse and worse. And that's why we need to do better. Because that sounds like a very hopeless situation. So it's important for your listeners to know they actually have magnificent power over this. The sad fact, though, is most of my colleagues don't know anything about this, nor do they care. Sadly, healthcare has become this revenue generating business, and it's bent on dispensing pharmaceuticals and procedures. And so the and you're going to find this smart people like your listeners, 
go to the doctor and you say, hey, tell me about lactobacillus rotori and its effect on oxytocin. Or what do you think about lactobacillus gasseri? What do you think about SIBO? Or what do you, they're gonna say, uh, don't waste my time, Carolyn. There's there's nothing wrong with you. Your cholesterol's fine. <laughs> right. They wouldn't know those answers. Well, thank you so much for being here and answering so many questions um, for me and explaining a lot of things to my listeners. I know my listeners are intrigued. They want to go read that super gut book. I want to get my hands on it. So tell my listeners where they can find you and your books, things like that. So the books are widely available in any major bookstore as well as Amazon. Uh, if you want a more intensive experience. And so all those recipes we talked about, Carolyn, are in the super gut book, with the exception of the Saccharomyces boulardii sparkling juices, because I came up, up that recipe just a few months ago. That one is in my drdavisinfinitehealth.com blog. It's also in my membership website, the uh, innercircle.drdavisinfinitehealth.com. But if you just go to any of those properties, you'll see all the links. But the recipes are in there. And that's where we also try to provide people with support. There's a private Facebook page, a forum, a discussion forum. We have weekly Zoom calls. So last night was me with 82 people. And we talk about, and you know what's great, Carolyn? When you start to collaborate to answer questions, you know, if you don't ask the question, you never get the answer. But if you start asking questions and you don't have an answer, when you have thousands of people collaborating, you start, the answer starts to crystallize and we start to find out new things. So I, I, for instance, last night, a woman came on, she, she's doing the program because her husband has Parkinson's disease. Well, there's a few peculiarities with Parkinson's. One is the first symptom of this neurodegenerative and crippling disorder. First symptom is typically constipation. Hmm. And most people's partners will report a peculiar odor. Hmm. Well, guess what? So this woman came on last night, was really excited because just after four weeks of the SIBO yogurt, because if you have Parkinson's, you've got SIBO. Uh, she said the smell is gone and he's changing. His habits are changing. His neurological behavior is changing. So we're seeing wow. some really cool things. That's play really out. exciting. You know, I have a quick question for you. Why is the gut and the microbiome becoming so trendy and so studied all of a sudden? Is it new technology that is allowing us to finally study these tiny microbes? Yeah, you know, I, I early in my career, all we could do is obtain a specimen of sputum, stool, urine, pus, right? And then look at it under a microscope and stain it and then culture it. Well, this, the sad reality is the vast majority of microbes don't grow in culture. <laughs> so... And so it, it's been the emergence of RNA and DNA techniques that has opened this. It's like having a flashlight in a dark house. All of a sudden you see all the detail and there's all this stuff there that we didn't know was there. Literally thousands of spe new species are being uncovered. Now, these species collaborate with each other. They interact. And so trying to untangle this is, is a major undertaking. But I can tell you, I just attended a microbiome conference in Washington, DC, and it's very exciting, Carolyn. This technology is advancing at breakneck speed. And I wouldn't have even said this a few weeks ago, but I think the power, the specificity, the availability of these new microbiome technologies are so huge, it's going to eclipse the pharmaceutical market. That's incredible. It's going to be very healing. 
If we can find these microbes that do so many specific things, it can be very healing to Americans. Well, I mean, to all people. So that's a microbe that eats glyphosate. How about microbes that bind mercury, cadmium, and lead? And you poop it out. Wow. Boosting oxytocin with all those wonderful effects. You know, I, I don't think it's a stretch, Carolyn, to say that these strategies like the rotarine oxytocin change the social fabric of the country. That's true, it too. Changes the way people, it changes the way people interact with each other. Yeah, if there's a microbe that makes us more empathetic, can you imagine the kindness that could happen in this world? There's so it's much- part of the solution to mass shootings, yeah, restoring the microbiome so people are less likely to hate and more likely to love and be em- empathetic. I Not to say that the microbiome solves all human problems, of course not. Right. But it could be a major piece of this solution. Wow, that would be a miracle because there's a lot of anger and hate in this world right now. So that's incredible. Well, again, thank you so much for being here. I could ask you 100 more questions. Um, I need you on another episode because we barely touched upon all the things I wanted to ask you. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Carolyn. Anytime you want me back, just say so. I got lots to say. Oh, that would be amazing. I will have you back. Um, I always close my episodes, though, with asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life, just because my account is called Just Ingredients. And so what would you say the best ingredient is? Purpose Mm. and mission. Uh, I think it's very important to have a purpose. I, I, you know, people used to ask me, what's your purpose? And I always thought it was so crystal clear. And so I've always been able to do that, that in this case, it's to fight against the misinformation and profiteering of the healthcare system, a corrupt $3 trillion system hell bent on cleaning out your purse while not providing health. Carolyn, that's wrong. It's wrong. And yet here, what you're doing. So I, I deeply respect and appreciate what you're doing, spreading the word of truth and health, because you're not going to make $4 million off of this, right? Because no. <laughs> Don't we wish? <laughs> well, I love that because purpose and mission is so important. If we just come here to life to do nothing, then we've wasted our precious time here on this earth. And if we have a purpose, if we have a mission, life is just so much more fulfilling We live a better, happier life. And like you said, my mission is to help people realize they can live a life full of happiness, a life full of health, that we don't need to be so miserable in an illness. And so thank you for everything that you're doing. It's incredible what you're doing. And I am excited to look at that super gut book and read more about your upcoming studies and things that you're doing. And Carla, I want you to know, I appreciate what you're doing. Because you may have noticed big media no longer talks about health nor nutrition. So you, me, any other book author who wants to talk about, say, nutrition or some health topic like Mike, is no longer welcome because it's in conflict with their advertisers. That is the pharmaceutical industry. So what you're doing is so important. Well, thank you. And we know that from social media because sometimes I have to spell words really funny so that I don't get it uh, (laughs) kicked off the page. So... We know that's happening. So again, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Carolyn. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.